Hello and welcome to the Conversation of Money podcast. This is where we talk about money, investing and all things personal finance. I'm your host, Peter Komalafe, and it's my mission to help you make the best financial decisions because money is a tool, life is for living. But first, a message from our sponsors, MoneyHub. MoneyHub is on a mission to engage and empower its customers to take control of their financial data and improve their financial wellness. Winners of Best Open Finance Innovation at last year's Open Bank Expo Awards, MoneyHub provides a central place to see all your accounts and assets in one place so you can see exactly what's going in and out of your account. With the widest range of connections available in the UK, you can connect to your current accounts, credit cards, investments, pensions, savings, mortgages, and loans with ease. This gives you visibility across your entire financial universe. Once connected, MoneyHub will break down money management into simple, actionable steps. You can analyze your spending, see how your investments are performing, and set yourself personal spending goals. If you are a homeowner, you can connect your property and see up-to-date property valuations via Zoopla. Or if you rent, you can report your rent payments to Experian to give your credit score a boost. To get started, download the app and sign up to your free six-month trial with no automatic renewals. So you can choose if you want to continue after the trial is out. With Money Hub, small improvements lead to big achievements, whether it's paying off debt, boosting savings, or monitoring your investments. Money Hub makes money management simple and convenient. Download the app today on the Apple Store or Google Play. I will leave a link in the show notes. All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back. It's uh, another Monday Conversational Money Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, this week, I've got another guest on the show. Um, so I don't know whether you guys have noticed already through this year, one thing that I want to do is I want to cater to both the money side and the living life side of our ethos and our philosophy here. It being that the, the, the theme and the, I guess the, the catchphrase for this podcast is money is a tool, life is for living. So this is going to be another episode which is going to help you with the money side of things in terms of helping you secure jobs, earn the most money, negotiate salaries, so on and so forth. And I have an expert with me. Um, her name is Marie Celeste. She also has a YouTube channel, actually, which is really, really good. And I would strongly encourage you and share this, by the way, if you are either hunting for a new job, you want to change jobs, and you know that you're going to be walking into kind of like an interview arena, and you're a little bit nervous about it, and you're looking for actionable, practical tips, then you definitely need to go check out Marie's uh, YouTube channel. Um, I'm going to let her introduce herself. Anne-Marie, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for inviting me. Not, not at all. Pleasure. Uh, my name's Anne-Marie Celeste. As, as you mentioned, I'm an interview coach. So I coach candidates on how to secure a well-paid, satisfying career. Um, I mainly do that via YouTube. And I do that by uh, essentially covering questions and answers, salary negotiations, difficult questions, and also questions and answers for specific job topics that are popular and requested. And in terms of my background, I have over 10 years hiring experience. So what I've been doing um, over the last 10 years is working in HR, specializing in recruitment, and I've interviewed over 4,000 people to date um, and quite a lot. Um, but when you do that, you basically start to see patterns in behavior. So you start to see what makes a, a candidate the exception, what, what makes an exceptional candidate, what makes uh, somebody who's consistently unsuccessful, what pushes someone to choose one person over another. And so I level the playing field basically on my channel by just covering all of that and sharing it. Um, because mainly because I've seen candidates that have amazing potential. Mm. They just don't know how to interview. Mm. Um, so in terms of my background, I 
left school just before 16. I have no, my PCSEs were horrible. I think I got an A star in English. I remember that, but everything else was bad. I'm not like particular, no, academic wise. Um, I, the only skills that I gained was I went to be a nursery nurse after I left school. And I remember my first paycheck was 270 pounds. And I thought, amazing. What am I going to do with all this money? Mm-hmm. I'd only had a paper round at that point, And I was like, what? That's amazing. Um, so I didn't have any really, uh, kind of major skills. And I remember some of my relatives said to me, um, go and work in a, like a retail store or a coffee shop, you know, dealing with, you know, trying to manage my expectations mainly because they cared. But um, I didn't want to do that. I think I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad or something. Okay, and I was yeah. like, that's what I'm going to Good do. Book, yeah. I'm going to be a millionaire. Yeah. Um, so that's it. Um, and then, uh, so be, being as stubborn as I was, I applied for a job at Coca-Cola. Um, and I nailed the interview, stunned everyone. Um, and from there, I went to work for a, like a series of big and small and medium brands um, over the last 20 years. So like British Airways, Gumtree, which is the classified arm of eBay, mm-hmm. Um, like Sky, Selfridges, AAT, a bunch of others as well. And I've been invited to interview at Microsoft and Facebook more than once in some occasions. So, and that's when basically people started asking me for coaching um, because they could see this person with no really discernible talent <laughs> going to work at these big brands with well-paid salaries. So um, that's that's pretty much what, what's happened. There's a long journey behind how I became a candidate that has such a high success rate. But today I'm kind of going to focus on, I guess, giving value mm. um, based on the most common struggles. So that's really kind of the, the quick version of my of my background. That's pretty impressive. I mean, interviewing 4,000 people. So I guess, yeah, you are going to start to see patterns of, mm-hmm. of what really works in the interview phase. Do you think, and I'd be interested to hear your, your thought on this, do you think that mindset going into mm-hmm. like a, an interview process is important or do you think it's a combination of mindset and maybe a little bit of preparation as well? Because I know people who will be very, very nervous going into it. Obviously you've got that air of, you don't really know what to expect. You want to impress yeah. this company. Um, you always kind of overanalyze things. What, what, yeah. what, what are your thoughts? So it's, that's tricky because prep is the one thing I constantly say in all my videos that people don't mm. do. and that's part of the reason that they don't, uh, they're not successful. But even if you prep in the ways that I set out and your, your mindset is that of somebody who you have a lot of limiting beliefs, you are not someone that can kind of psychologically pivot to see the situ- a situation um, that in a way that's most beneficial for you, then you will struggle anyway, even if you prep in the right way. So it's a mixture of both. You need, essentially, you need to go on a journey of constant self-improvement um, alongside preparing in the right way in order to become exceptional. Um, and I think that that's one thing that scares off a lot of people is the, the volume. Sometimes people see a finished product, mm. so they just think, oh, you're just hopping from here to here. And it's like the amount of prep that went into that, majority of people don't do that. And that's the reason why. Um, I know recruiters, uh, I've interviewed heads of HR that have been woefully unprepared for their own interviews. It's shocking. Um, so it's it's really at, at all levels. It's a personality trait. Either somebody um, is, they function that way where they're always self-improving or they, or it's just something that they have to, they have to learn. Um, or you get those people that kind of fly the flag of everything's terrible all the time and everything's just luck and it's a game of numbers. If you believe that, um, then my channel probably can't help mm. you. Um, but if you're interested in learning, then, um, then yes, absolutely. It's kind of, 
I'd say it's 50-50. It has to be 50-50. Because mm. I think sometimes people feel as though like you need to have skills and qualifications and obviously experience in order to pass an interview. And I think maybe it, a part of it, there's, there's a part of it that which is true to that. But I think there's so much more that goes into it in terms of the prep and just some of the how you approach things. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. So it's, I would I would be so bold as to say that skills, experience and qualifications don't matter at mm. all in an interview setting. So they, they're not a deciding factor in an interview. So but the majority of candidates believe that it is, and that is what is so limiting. So they can help you if you know how to use them, mm -hmm. but most people don't. And you also need them to deliver in the role once you've secured mm -hmm. it. But the only thing that matters in your interview and the one thing is interview performance. Um, and the reason I phrase it this way is because the interviewer doesn't know you. You know why you've got all the skills for the job. They don't know you. They never met you before. You have to give a snapshot in the space of an interview. And that snapshot can be a little bit fuzzy. It's if you, um, if, if you are not sure how to put yourself forward and in a way that is clear and persuasive and concise and authentic. And if you can't do that, that, that really is a struggle, regardless of whether or not you're skilled. If you and I go for an interview and I'm more believable and authentic than you and the interviewer trusts me and we've built up an emotional connection and a rapport, it doesn't matter that you've got the qualifications. It's irrelevant. Every job I've had has said that you need a CIPD, which is the recognized qualification for HR. I don't have that. Wow. I, I've, okay. I don't have that. And I've worked at a lot of places um, and they don't care because when I get into the interview, um, I show them how I'll deliver and I and I'm constantly focused on offering value to them. And then when I get in there and I do it within six months or whatever, it, they don't care. They simply don't care about that. You know what? That's really um, really interesting because, yeah. like, when I was in Canary Wharf, I I headed up my own team, so I had a team of like eight to ten people underneath me, and I always mm. struggled with like really knowing whether you've got the right person. And I and there are instances where we look into recruit, and this person is mm -hmm. perfect on paper. Like on paper, the ideal person, like you tick all of the boxes, perfect. But on interview day, you just don't, I don't know, you just have this kind of like inner feeling like something's not quite right. This isn't the right person. And then the person goes and yeah. there'll be a number of occasions where you look at someone on the CV. And I remember this specifically mm -hmm. for uh, a lady that we that joined my team, Helen. On, on paper, she was just like, nah. No, 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 absolutely no. But the, but the recruitment agent was like, you should definitely have a chat with her. She has a way of winning people over. And she shone through on the interview day. She was just so likable and just her personality and the skill set. Mm. She wasn't the finished product, but we knew yeah. that if we could train her and develop her, she would be absolutely amazing. And I think you're absolutely right. The qualifications, yeah, they're, they're there. They're there to tick a box, but personality and traits and all that are so important as well oh it's, you know i know people that have spent thousands on, on getting qualified um so i surveyed some of my subscribers recently i did zoom calls and i spoke to one person who spent over ten thousand pounds on a coding academy wow. and my heart was actually breaking for her because she was so depressed and i just thought the, the thing that's so bizarre is when you pay for these qualifications, you do it so that you can then secure a career. Mm -hmm. no, no, no one just does it for yeah. the experience, right? And they don't include how to actually secure a career. 
they just tell you this is the theory of what you what you do yeah. when you get into the job, but they don't tell you how to pass an interview, um, how to secure the best salary, and and how to actually get into the job. And that's the whole point of why people are spending the money in the first place. Um, and one of the most important transformations as well that's really important is um, kind of dealing with rejection. That was a big transformation for me. So, kind of passing onto my clients um, is the meaning. So the meaning that you take out of rejection, mm-hmm. how you navigate it, because, you know, we're saying like, it's a snapshot of time. And so you, you can't internalize that. There's a lot of reasons why, why, why you wouldn't do that, but essentially not drawing negative conclusions from it. It's kind of a whole process. Um, but yeah, I mean, so in terms of skills and experience, I'd say there's a, you know, the reason it doesn't matter is because it's not how hiring decisions are made anyway. So, you know, they're made, we make over 90% of our decisions emotionally as human mm-hmm. beings. Yep. It's not how human beings are wired, but we use logic to justify those, those decisions. And um, it's why you might meet many people at work who are terrible at what they do, um, but actually they passed the interview because they knew how to connect with the interviewer. Um, you know, it's it's why, like, you'll see on X Factor, like, I remember the earlier versions of X Factor, like Pop Idol and, yeah. you know, when Cheryl Cole was going through yeah, the yeah, process. Yeah. And they never used to spend so much time on the person's backstory. Mm-hmm. But by the time you get to, like, 2020, if they're still doing it now, I don't know, but... Um, they spend so much time on the person's backstory yeah. and the, the sad that emotive, music and... That emotive oh my side, God, yeah, yeah. Exactly. They know who they want you to pick. Yeah. And it's basically, um, you know, how it's, it's similar in an interview. They, they know who they want you to pick on the show. And it, it, they know that even if somebody has better singing ability and technical ability, people do not care. It's why I remember this Chico yeah, contestant yeah, yeah, yeah. going yeah. so far, yeah. so far in the competition, couldn't really sing, but he knew how to, to you know, he knew how to work the audience. So you know, that's, that's one of the many reasons why it doesn't matter. That's not how we make decisions anyway. Um, and your interviewer just can't assess those things in that short space of time. So I'd say those are really the reasons why skills, experience and qualifications in an interview itself should not be your focus. You need to practice a number of other things um, in terms of like, yeah, in, in just, just in terms of preparing, speaking for your answers. And um, I can go in, into a lot more detail on prep because it's kind of a, like a more detailed topic. But yeah, absolutely. I would I would stand by that 100% about the skills and qualifications. So what would you say is the, the, the top three characteristics of an exceptional candidate when you've come across one in the interview process? So uh, top three characteristics. I, it's interesting. I'd say there's probably about five. So because, okay, so one of them is really, I'd say, exceptional listening skills. Um, it's really important because... You need to pay attention to, in an interview, to what the interviewer is saying to you. So you need to pay attention carefully to their body language, how they respond to what you, how they respond to everything you say. So, you know, do they look away? Do they sigh? Do they cross their arms? All of those things uh, can make a huge difference to um, how how your interview, it turns out. And one of the things I notice about exceptional candidates is that they are fantastic listeners. They are very, very sharp listeners. So understanding the listening skills is really, really important. Um, And also just listening to the question that you're being asked. That's so common that candidates actually completely miss the question that Mm. they're being asked. It's unbelievable, um, but it's so easy to do. Um, So for example, let's say that um, I asked you, um, okay, Pete, can you give me an example of a time when you 
created a new process or you improved an existing process. You know, you, you implemented something new or you, you improved something existing. And somebody might answer saying something like, yeah, I um, I've, I've worked on many processes in my time. Um, and, you know, I increased profits by 7%. I've even received a recommendation from my head of department because of all the processes that I'm involved in, et cetera. But that doesn't answer the question that they're asking. They've asked you for a specific example. Mm-hmm. And that happens so often in an interview. Mm. The, more than 50% of the time, we have to either repeat the question or dig further to get the information that we want mm-hmm. because the person hasn't listened to the question clearly. Um, so an answer that addresses the question is, is something like, um, you know, I've, I've been involved in many processes in my time. When I started in the company, um, they were using paper, paper registration forms. And I saw that this could be changed. And so I spoke to my manager, I got approval, I developed relationships with different teams along the way, and then I implemented it. It's now the new process. And as a benefit of that, um, we have more customer registrations on the website. It's increased by, you know, try to include numbers and specifics, mm-hmm. like it's increased by 15%, include any monetary gains for the company. And, you know, it also, it's, it's, uh, it's environmentally friendly, which is in line with our strategy of going green, or, you know, you link it into all of the, th- all of the things that are relevant. And let's say that you're interviewing somewhere where the company's ethos is going green, then you definitely want I to like include that. that. As well. So the examples that exactly it shows so research as well, doesn't it? It shows that you actually research literally the company. Yeah. See, I, you'd be great in an interview. I, I've, <laughs> so, I've, had, I've had some <laughs> I've had some great interviews in my time. I think as I got older, I got better with interviews. Mm-hmm. I think early in my career I had some car crash interview which is normal because you kind of like (laughs) learn as you go along but yeah absolutely yeah i saw your define the odds video by the way which is amazing oh thank you like honestly yeah um you know i I wasn't crying there was just something in my eye while i was watching it but it was (laughs) it was amazing it was amazing um and i remember you saying that you you wore like a leather jacket and jeans or something yeah to my first interview i would have been oh my god I would have been screaming at you. You know if what? I was there. And, and <laughs> but... this is where I, I like. I honestly, I tried to get Jenny, um, who was the lady who interviewed me for that first job in banking, to be on the show, but she caught COVID at the time, so she couldn't appear. Because I just wanted to ask her, what were you oh. thinking? Like, what were you thinking? I turned up in jeans and a leather jacket because I honestly thought that I would never get that job because obviously I had debt, I owed banks money, I was really, really oh poor gosh. with money. My credit score was through the floor. But somehow, yeah. I don't know what she did. I have no idea what she did. But yeah. she, she saw something in me. And I think that was that is a really, really important moment for me personally on my professional, on my professional journey. Wow. Wow. That's that's really, yeah, that's really, it's, that's really interesting. I hope she's okay now. Yeah, she's okay now. She recovered and stuff like that. But yeah, I, I, oh, okay. I was so looking forward to her get capturing some thoughts with her and having a chat with her because I hadn't seen her for years and years and years and years and years just to catch up with her and stuff but if you're listening to this definitely do not rock up to an interview in like jeans <laughs> and a leather jacket thank it's you. the wrong thing to do <laughs> thank you for clarifying that thank you um so yeah I mean the characteristics um, one of the other things is that I'd say that exceptional pe- people take extreme radical accountability um they do not spend time complaining or focusing on what the other person should have done. So, oh, the interviewer was a bad interviewer. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, somebody got the job, somebody got hired. And so the interviewer was still bad. 
it doesn't make a difference. Mm-hmm. The difference is that person was focused on how they could add value. They made their interview exceptional, regardless of the skills of the interviewer. Mm. So that is important. I mean, I could go on for hours about accountability, um, but that's one of the major differences is people spend a lot of time focusing on, um, you know, the interview didn't do this or why didn't the employer do that? Or they didn't come back to me. Yeah. There's, um, there's that as well. So, um, I'd say perseverance is key. Mm -hmm. So for me, perseverance includes patience. It includes kind of the understanding that change takes time. And so, perseverance means that you continue regardless and you strap yourself in for the long haul. So you're focused on getting a little bit better each time with every interview, doing as much prep as you can, um, and making sure that you, that you keep going regardless of outside noise, Mm -hmm. what your family, you know, if your family and friends are telling you, no, don't do that. Just go for that, you know, that, that job, that minimum wage job, which they're not bad jobs by the way, but if that's not what you want, then, you know, you need to really listen to yourself Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if I, I, I might still even be in childcare, which I did like 20 years ago, because if I, if I hadn't kind of persevered with what I wanted to do, I mean, I didn't become a millionaire by the age that I thought I was going to do, but I like to think I'm still kind of on track. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, um, I mean, you need to have laser sharp focus in order, in order to persevere. So you need to block out the noise. Um, and that's also the noise coming from inside your own head. Yes. So if you've built up, yeah. yeah a conversation if you've built up a, a, like a relationship with yourself where your conversations are unhealthy internally yeah I, I think that's a really really on. big big part as well because it's self it's self-limiting beliefs and like you have to try and break free from that kind of internal self-talk you have to tell yourself that you are the best thing since life bread like one thing that i that i used to do and i still do this to to this day <laughs> So I'm a big believer in like emotive music, like music can get you really pumped up. So on occasion where I've been going to like an interview, I will basically play. I don't know whether you know, like, uh, you know, these these uh, pieces that go into like movie trailers, they're epic and they're just like uplifting. <laughs> I have that on. Like yes. either as I'm walking down the street with my earphones or in the car, I have it going. So Dark Knight themes, all that kind of stuff. Because it, oh my gosh, it I've got the soundtrack do for you? that. Do you? Oh, mate, yeah. Hans Zimmer. Yeah, Hans Zimmer is amazing. Yes, Hans Zimmer is yeah. amazing. I've, so yeah, I have that because it gets me in this state of like I am invincible. I'm gonna walk into this thing. I'm gonna be the best person there on the day, and I'm just gonna give it absolutely everything. But that's very much mindset. It's that self-talk as you walk into it, and I think that's really, 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 really important in the process when you're trying to kind of go towards something you're trying to better better yourself and go for things that maybe might be outside of your realm of possibility if you will i do want to touch on something that you said there one of the first things you said was okay. um one of the the first uh, exceptional skill that you taught was exceptional listening skills do you think part of that is down to um emotional intelligence and being able to read the room or is that something yeah. different in your opinion it's, it is part of emotional intelligence. Um, it's interesting thinking the best way to explain it because your ability to take in what's coming in um, affects what you think you've heard, if that makes sense. So um, when it comes to listening, I've had conversations with people and I'll say, oh, I, I, th- this is what I actually said. And another person in the room will say, yeah, that, that's right. And so 
Yes, basically. <laughs> yes. So noticing the fact that somebody kind of leaned back and looked away or the fact that they, um, you know, sighed or the fact that they were kind of leaning forward and they kept looking like they were going to speak. Not everybody notices that. Um, and so absolutely emotional intelligence, but the good news is that you can increase that. Mm -hmm. So there was Daniel Goleman is, is someone that I, I follow on LinkedIn and, and also he's written a book on, he, I think he kind of founded the idea of, of emotional intelligence. And, um, I, it's always fascinated me because I knew there was a different type of intelligence. I didn't know what it was. I just, I had a friend who could convince anyone to do anything. She was so charismatic and she was so, um, kind of joyful and charismatic and upbeat um, but she wasn't academically gifted. And I thought she's intelligent, but she, what, like, what is that? Mm -hmm. So emotional intelligence is super important. Um, and, and it's something that you can, that you can work on. Basically it's something that you can, you can improve. It's not like, you know, you're born with it and if you don't have it, then, then tough. So yeah, that's a really good. Point. I want to share a story because I'm, I, I'm interested to get your views on this, by the way. Um, okay. so I covered this in the film that you that you're referencing there. So when I first started in financial services, my dream was to work in mm -hmm. Canary I didn't know how I was going to get there, but I knew that I was going to get there. You know, you have this kind of intuition mm -hmm. sometimes. I knew I was going to get there. So when I finally got the interview into Canary Wharf, we don't cover this as much in the film, but, you know, we only had a limited amount of time. I went for the first and we had a telephone interview first. So I put myself, I went to Canary Wharf, took the telephone interview because I wanted to be in the environment to be able to take it in and visualize myself there. After that, I went through to the main interview, which was the one that I explained in the film where we entered into this massive boardroom, 30 guys there, mm -hmm. and I'm the last person to walk in 15 minutes early, felt horrible. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> what's going on? I got through that day um, with maybe two other guys. Then I went for a third round. And in this third round, I did a, a personality profile kind of like test, right? And in this third round, mm -hmm. it was kind of like, it was more competency-based type stuff, right? Competency-based type questions because the main interview did was like practical things. And the first question that they asked me was, tell us what your weaknesses are. And obviously I was like, well, I'm not going to tell you that I'm like really rubbish at admin and I'm crap at this and all this kind of stuff. So me, me being me, and this probably wasn't the right thing to do. Oh and they gave me hell for it. They gave me hell for it. I, I kind of said, well, you know, um, I'm not great at this, but I then went on to a positive. So I literally answered it very, very briefly, went on to a positive and danced around it for a bit. But they came back and like you were saying, ask the question again. I give the same answer. They came back, asked the question again. And then I was like, okay, cool. I'm just going to have to tell you, I'm rubbish at admin. I don't like admin. I don't like doing it. That's not one of where my strength lies. I'd rather do something else that I'm really, really happy with, but this is how I cope with it. In the end, I got the job. But okay. interestingly, they gave me my personality profile and it said explicitly in the, in, in the personality profile, ask him a difficult question and don't let him go yeah. off the question press the question and it felt really, <laughs> okay. really uncomfortable. They, I, I remember spending about 15 minutes on this, on this question. And I just thought mm. I've blown this. And this, oh. this is, uh, this leads on to my question. How important is it? And how do you build kind of like this unbreakable confidence to manage things like brain freeze? Cause when you get questions like that, 
you're just kind of like, mm. uh, uh, what do I say? What are your tips? Oh, there's so many. <laughs> I think is that's interesting because I personality profile assessments, if you if they use a good company, can be really accurate and it can it can do that. And there's a lot of different ways to answer the weaknesses question. But unbreakable confidence is is kind of, a, I guess, a tricky one. There's a lot that you can do. Um, so I would say the first thing that I tend to do when people ask me about confidence or they struggle with confidence is I ask them what is because because confidence is a general term mm-hmm. and it's kind of what we think confidence is. So I ask them, can you give me an example of someone that you think is, is a confident person? Um, and I remember asking this to a, a graduate, a guy that I was working with, and he said the Wolf of Wall Street, <laughs> um, which <laughs> which one, the fictional character his- or at the actual real guy? Do you know what? Um, I actually don't know. I'm guessing the fictional character because we don't know what Jordan Belfort was like then. Mm-hmm. There, were no, there was no camera in his offices. Mm-hmm. We only know the depiction of what he was mm-hmm. like. So I'm assuming that that, uh, you know, that that's, that's it really. <laughs> but, it, you know, the interesting thing about that is that surface level confidence that people think is genuine because they can always see it. I remember him saying, Jordan Belfort, in an interview that the re- he, all the drugs and things that he did um, and all the, you know, the, the big, the big personality and everything he needed to get through what he was doing, which was basically committing a lot of crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the kind of confidence that goes alongside that is not unbreakable. Um, it's the kind of confidence that, um, is, is affected by what, what other people think and how other people see you. The kind of confidence that lasts that is unbreakable is a quiet confidence that's basically backed by self-esteem. So it comes from a really strong internal foundation. So what what I mean by that is your internal belief systems. So like your mental patterns and the constructs that you create and what you, what you think of yourself, that's, that's essentially unbreakable confidence. And because it's your relationship with yourself, you can develop it if you don't have it. So we all know people that are kind of, they're quietly confident they know what they're talking about, but they're not someone that's really loud, really over the top, really kind of always, always in your face. Um, whereas, you know, I, I remember a guy I, I worked with um, in sales back in, I was working in some really aggressive sales environments and this friend somehow is kind of stuck in my life. And I remember him saying to me that he used to buy really expensive suits and have nothing left after he got paid. And then he'd say, and everyone thought, told him he looked amazing. And he said to me, if someone told me I didn't look good, I would feel like crap. And I was like, really? Like he, he said, yeah, I would, I'd feel awful. Um, and that just basically relies on other people telling you it relies on somebody else. Mm. It shouldn't. And that's the reason why, you know, I, of course I've had rejections. I didn't walk straight into all these brands and then just get in. Um, well, in some cases, in some cases I did, but that was after a lot of rejections. Yeah. So it really is, um, in terms of building unbreakable confidence, um, you know, I'm not going to necessarily break down mental constructs and build them back up in a way that's conducive because we just don't have enough time on the podcast. And yep. also, I'm not a psychologist, yeah. so I, I don't know everything about that. But I do care about learning. And one of the ways I do that um, on, on a constant basis is by reading. So I, I'm reading a book at the moment called Atomic Habits mm-hmm. um, by James Clear. It's I haven't finished it, but it's game changing. Um, and that, that's some of the ways that you can, you can build confidence, bit of, sorry, a bit of a long winded answer to like a simple question. It's interesting. You, you, um, I give the example of your friend there because I guess there is a whole, I don't know whether it is just a guy thing or not, but I, I certainly recall my time in Canary Wharf. And I think because of my background, 
and where I mm -hmm. was at the time and the fact that I don't have a university degree. So how do I mm -hmm. then find myself working in a, a Fortune 100 company amongst all of these people who are Eton, Oxford educated, like really, mm -hmm. really, really like book, book, book smart guys. And I'm smart, but I'm like different league of these guys, right? And yeah. sometimes I felt like I had to justify and almost fit in. So I went and bought the expensive suit because for me, I was kind of like, okay, so if I'm going to walk into a place and if you talk about the, um, the, the dynamic of the office and the appearance of the office, there was me, Julian, and one other guy um, in IT. There were three of us who were black, right? So for me, I was like, okay, cool. I don't necessarily belong here because I don't have the university degree. This is my own thinking at the time. So I would, I would make sure that when I walked into a room, my appearance and I put myself together to know like, okay, he, he's serious. And I think there's an mm -hmm. element of that, which comes into a mind's, a, a guy's mindset when you're walking into those kind of environments. I don't necessarily think that for me, it had a negative impact if someone didn't recognize or compliment me on the suit that I was wearing, but it was more my own right. I'm prepared, my mental, like I'm in a suit today, I look the best, I'm putting my best foot forward, I'm prepared for what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna go into it and stuff like that. And it's interesting to yeah. see that because it manifests in different ways for different people. And it can either be positive, it can either be negative. And I like to think that I try to use it in the most positive ways, particularly with interviews and stuff like that. I want to be yeah, noticed yeah. when I walk into a room so that people are like, okay, maybe we need to listen to what he he looks serious. He looks like he knows what he's going what knows what he's talking about, that type of thing. It's very, very interesting though. It is. And I'm an advocate of like the polished appearance. I'm, I, you know, being someone who, you know, has, has locks basically. And, you know, I'm, I'm Jamaican. A lot of the places I worked, particularly 20 years ago, um, again, you are either the only black person mm -hmm. or one of a very small amount. So I felt like, and, and the suit, the suit is not a bad thing. It does actually do something very, very valuable. It creates kind of a blank canvas mm -hmm. for them to assess you only based on your, your actions and your words in the interview. Um, so a suit, it is very, very powerful. Um, and, but I think it was more just a case of not relying on it so heavily. And it happens over time when, when you're young and, you know, learning and insecure, do you know what I mean? As I was absolutely, I put so much emphasis on a lot of those things. Mm -hmm. And um, although a polished appearance is important, I say not as much today, there's a lot more emphasis on look at who the person is, but back then polished appearance was 100% um, important. And I would argue that it still plays a part today. Um, you know, because mainly because some interviewers, um, a lot of the people in management and upwards are still from older generations. Oh, yes. yeah. Some of them think like, you know, have a modern point of view and some of them do not. So you're taking your chances if you go there in in anything other than a standard suit mm -hmm. and tie or for a woman, a woman's suit or a corporate dress. Um, and my view is don't do anything that basically gives them the opportunity to reject you, create a blank canvas, and then you go in there and everything they judge you on is what you say and the value you put and how you prove that you can deliver in the role that they have. That's, that's it. And I would agree with that. Um, I think yeah. really more mm. than anything else, the appearance and how you outwardly present yourself cannot be a substitute for the substance that you have and that you'll bring yeah. to bear as well. Do you think there are any traps that people could avoid when it comes to the whole interview process? What kind of things have you seen that typically are just mistakes people are making? It's like, that's easily avoidable. 
Yeah, uh, traps. So, you know, a lot of a lot of the, the kind of traps that people fall into are often related to their own behaviours. Um, but I would say that some of them are things like an entitlement mindset. So the flames have been fanned by COVID on this. So it's it's caused the great resignation, which I think mm-hmm. you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. So I'll just break briefly. It's about four million people left their jobs. And it's created this it kind of high? unprecedented. Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize it was that <laughs> yeah. high. I wonder if that was the States. Maybe I was looking at US figures, but it's very, very high yeah. in, in, the, in the UK as well, because it's, it's kind of, well, it's all over the world, yeah. but I know the Western world has been affected in the millions. Yeah. Um, and so it's created these jobs and employers are now scrambling to keep their operations going and secure the best talent on the market. So they are... Um, offering really high salaries, um, things that, you know, once upon a time, like I remember that something like working from home on a Friday was something that only the director did. Yeah. Um, and I was like, when I get like, like when I, when I get up there, I'm going to have a corner office. I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to work from home on a Friday um, and, you know, all of those things. Uh, but, and you had to wait a long time for promotion, but now people are waiting for, uh, people are kind of expect is particularly the new wave of people coming yeah. into the market. Some of them are expecting quick promotions, yeah. high bonuses, high salaries, and when they don't get it, they feel like it's that they're you know they failed in some yeah. way or they're they're unsatisfied, and that is something definitely to avoid that mindset because um, it's also been found by online people saying you know candidates now have all the power etc. and they know that it gets clicks, likes, and revenue. The reality is the employers have the power. Okay, they still have the power. You're going to them for a job. They're interviewing you. That dynamic is still the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and once the market settles down, um, it won't go back to exactly what it was before, but it will. It will kind of change a bit more. So focus on offering value, um, and you know what you can do. And that's mainly the thing to focus on. Going into it with an entitled mindset, even if you think it doesn't come across in your interview, it does. The person interviewing you is probably interviewing tons of other people and they can spot those things. So that's probably one of the main things. Um, And, you know, we we talked about limiting beliefs already. That's one of the traps that people fall into. So just to kind of go to be clear about that, it's any belief that limits you in your life from something that you, you want to do. So, for example, some people that are getting lots of rejections, they question their worth. And that's basically caused by the belief that your worth is based on rejections or acceptance from mm. the company. Um, I mean, part of that is to do with the societal construct of us working for employers mm. and the emphasis placed on that importance, but I won't go too too deeply into that. But, you know, essentially questioning your worth is, is based on that. And I think that that, that can be quite damaging. Um, or they'll say, I don't have enough experience. And that is like, caused by the belief that your experience is more important than your interview performance, mm-hmm. which, which is not the case. Um, you know, the interview is not skilled. Doesn't matter. Somebody got the job. You know, those are the, some of the limiting beliefs that people have that can, that, that essentially trap them in the job that they're in. Um, you know, I, I, ha- I have a friend who's been in a job for eight to nine years now. Um, I joined maybe when he was about four or five years in and he complained all the time, but he didn't, he hated interviews. So he just stayed. Mm. So he basically chose misery for eight to nine mm. hours a day instead of developing the skills he needed to get what he wanted. Um, so yeah, I'd say that those are some of the, some of the main traps. So when we're talking about, you know, the, this whole interview process, obviously the, the, the goal is to actually get a job offer at the end of it. Cause I think 
most yeah. people, if they go for most job interviews, it's like there is the, the desire is there to be able to want to work for that company. How do you turn mm-hmm. those interviews into consistent job offers? You know, it's pretty simple, actually. So I, I would say that prep is one of the main things. So there's, there's a few quick tips, actually, that you can do to that if put in place, they seem almost too simplistic. Okay. However, when you do them, you'll see the difference if you if you practice them on a consistent basis. So one of them is prep. So prep for your interview, not the night before. Um, you need to do it as soon as you know you have an interview and try to give yourself time. So if they say, you know, can you do it in a few days, try to add on a day or two, mm-hmm. give yourself as much time to prep as possible. And you want to focus your prep on key areas and so things like the essential and desirable skill sets in the job description. Um, so I'm sure you, you know you know what that mm-hmm. is, but just for clarity, um, the essential skills, what you absolutely must have, and the desirable skills are nice to have, but you, you, you know as many boxes as you can tick as possible. So that's the main thing um, is to to focus your prep in those areas, and you can go really granular with it. You can you can note down the specific areas of the job description that link in with your skills go through your career history and come up with some key examples that you can use. And once you've done that, you'll be able to use those examples for other questions too. Mm -hmm. Um, So one of them is is prep. Um, I'd say one of the other things is actually speaking your answers. So people um, don't do this. They often read through things and they go over it quietly in their head. You must speak your answers. Um, A trick is to record yourself. But the reason I say speak your answers is because when you do this, you hear what the interviewer hears, not what you think you sound like. And when that happens, people often don't even need coaching because they can hear what shouldn't be there. They can hear, I said that too long, or I shouldn't say that, I shouldn't use that word. Um, you know, I, I remember listening to a recording of myself on YouTube and I thought, this is horrific. Why didn't somebody <laughs> tell me that I sound like this? Like it was, it, I, like my, it's so squeaky. And like now I'm used to listening to my, my squeaky voice, so it's fine. But you just need to like, you really need, you really need to, to speak your answers. Try speak to someone if, if they're in your house. Um, and if you don't have anyone at home that you can talk to, then, um, then, then you then do it on your own. I've never, I've never practiced with anyone. Um, I just do it on my own. And one last thing is they need to know, know their CV. So you should be able to talk through your CV in a way that is fluid and easy. Um, so you need to know your CV. Don't make it sound like someone else created it. And you've just seen it for the first time in the interview, um, memorize dates, a um, couple of quick sentences on what you did, um, your most impressive achievements, keep them relevant, keep your achievements relevant. I can't stress that enough. I've seen so many, I was, I was mentoring a member of my family, actually, uh, a relative of mine um, in the last few months. And they had, <laughs> they had awards they'd won for things that were totally irrelevant to the job that they wanted to go for. And I was like, it's great that you've got that, but it's almost better that it's not there mm-hmm. than having something totally irrelevant on your CV because Everything on there should should increase the interview, the chances of you getting an interview. There shouldn't be anything irrelevant on there. So yeah, <laughs> it's interesting you talk about speaking your answers because I because mm-hmm. literally you have no idea because in your head it, mm. you can say it fluently in your head, but the minute you try to make that an audible kind of like recital, it never yeah. comes out as 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 clear and as clean as you have it in your head. And it takes yeah. a few like r- rounds to kind of like trim it down and make it really, really perfect. So I've definitely, definitely learned to do that from interview purposes before because mm. you can just waffle on for a period of time and then, you know, it's, it's, it's dead time and you kind of lose the person that's in front of you. So assuming you've gone for this interview then 
and you don't hear back. And oftentimes this for a lot of people is there's going to be a waiting period whilst the decision is being made. What mm-hmm. do you do? Uh, so my advice on, on following up is probably different. I've not seen any advice um, that's similar to mine online, really, apart from recruiters. I don't follow up. I actually do not follow up at all. Okay. Um, you, Having been a recruiter, I know that you will never see an exceptional CV that has everything you want. They've worked at a competitor for many years. They've got all the qualifications and then forget about that candidate. You will never forget that you want someone you want to interview. Um, but so I, I just don't do it. And also if you're following a structured approach with your, with your um, kind of interview job search, um, a focused approach that includes personal development throughout that process, you won't have the time to keep chasing employers. Mm-hmm. It's better that you focus on employers that will bite your hand off because you'll have a better experience, better prospects, you'll get a better salary on your first offer because they really want you. Um, and it's, and yeah, so it's better to focus on, on those than, than, you know, than all of that. But if you, if you have to follow up, I would say, just do it once after that, it gets annoying. Yeah. And, um, you know, if you annoy the manager or recruiter, then you're unlikely to move forward in the process. I know it's blunt, but that's, that's the reality. Yeah. A question for you, and I, maybe this would be slightly different if you're already within a business and trying to climb mm-hmm. the corporate ladder more than just like first first round interviews. But how mm-hmm. important do you think um, like feedback is? It's critical. It's one of my, it's one of the things that irritates me most about interview situations is simply that um, people don't get feedback and they should. They should always get feedback and it should always be, re- it shouldn't be, we decided to go with someone else. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be that. It should be when you answer this question, this is, we were looking for more examples on this. Mm-hmm. There was a candidate that gave us a really strong example here. Some of your skills here are really strong, but here, you know, that's what it should be. You know, when I'm, when I was, I was interviewing for an assistant in the last few years and there were a couple of people that I gave them fo- feedback in, in the interview. Um, you know, there was a lady who I remember was not right for the role. And I told her in, in the interview because we talked about it and I talked through and she kind of concluded it before I did, because I was breaking down her answers in the interview. And I said, you, what you want to do? I said, don't go backwards in your career because she really didn't want that job. She wanted a more senior role and she had the experience. It was just in a different country and she was struggling to get mm-hmm. experience in this country. And I said, don't go backwards in your career. And, and I gave her some specific tips of what she can do in order to, um, to position herself in the best way. Um, and she had some, it's just that her CV was a little bit messy and it just needed to be a little bit clearer what her relevant experience was. Cause I said to her, if we had that role, I would take you to next stage interview 100%. But I said, at this time, this role just isn't right. And she she was fine with it. But you should absolutely give feedback to candidates. It, it, it is important. Um, but the reason it doesn't happen is because people struggle to have difficult conversations. Not everyone's trained in how to do that. Yeah. I mean, from my experience, certainly when I was in Canary Wharf, because I was, well, I'll say I was lucky, but I worked my ass off for it. I started up as a telephone boy in five years. I got, I went from telephone boy to the executive team. And through that, it was applying for different roles. So I was told no for, for the big job, mm-hmm. probably, well, actually not for the big one. The one before that, I was, I was told no for that job two or three times. And each time mm-hmm. I was like, okay, so what do I actually need to do to be the best candidate the next time around? Asking for that feedback. And in my case, I kind of said to the guy, I said, look, if we can agree certain things, if I did this, did this, did this, and it met your criteria, it means that I bridged the gap, 
will that mean that I'm in the best position? Yes. Okay. What are those things? And I got those things actually agreed, documented. I went away and I worked on those things. So by the time it was the third time I applied for, for the promotion that at that point, they didn't really have a choice because I'd, I'd taken on board all of the feedback. They gave me things to work on. I absolutely smashed those things. So it was like, what are you going to do? Like I've met yeah. all of the yeah. criteria and I was very, very blunt with them. I said, this is the third time. Like, not to be arrogant, but I'm an asset to the business. I'm willing to move mm. anywhere in the country for this opportunity. Nobody else is willing to be able to do that. I mm. will. If I've met all of the criteria and this time round, you're telling me no for some spurious reason you, that I don't feel that you can justify, I will go and I will go and find a job elsewhere and be an asset elsewhere. And it took a little bit of balls to be able to do that. But yeah, the feedback for me was really, really important because I used that to my advantage to say, okay, look, I'm confident. I can definitely go off and do those things. But if I keep my end of the bargain up, I expect you to, to keep up your end of the bargain as well. That is, oh, that is, that's brilliant. Like, because you didn't, essentially they should have done that with you. So what they should have done is they should be coming to you to let you know that these are the skills that you need to develop in order to be ready for this role in six, 12, mm -hmm. 18 months. But so many people don't do that. And you basically brought that conversation to their door so that they have to tell you what it is. And then when you get there, they then need to justify why they're not going to put you in that role if they're not going to put you in that role. I, I have a, a DWP work coach um, video and somebody um, from the DWP working there who wanted to get a promotion actually asked me that question that I've been here for, I think it was like 18 years, a really long time. And they said, I want to get a promotion. You know, what should I do? You know, I'm, I, I'm not, and I was like, ask, ask what you need to do to get it. And they, they, they have to tell you they're not. And it's beautiful when you work there because they can't say, we'll come back to you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, if it's yeah, an yeah. interview and you're not getting feedback, yeah. they can kind of ignore you. Yeah. But if you're, in, if you're standing over their desk, there's nothing they can do. So that was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. So what a couple of last questions for you. What is the best sure. way to negotiate the best possible salary for you? Okay. Assuming you've got the job offer now, mm -hmm. how do you go about this? Because I know that for many people, this is often something that, and I've struggled with it in the past. Like, this is the offer. And it's like, sometimes you feel so grateful that you've got the offer. That you're just like, yeah, thank you very much. When it's like, well, hang yep. on a second. <laughs> they probably could have gone a little bit more had I just mm. sat back and be like, okay, thank you but I think I'm worth a little bit more. You probably are, you know, they, they, pro they probably, you know, I mean, it's, for me, this one's really straightforward. Um, and it's not, I, I remember before I, I have a, a video on this and before I posted it, I watched a lot of videos and none of them included the advice that I was giving because it's kind of controversial. doesn't work for everyone. So it's my style is really straightforward. I'm very, very clear about the salary that I want early in the process, as early as possible. I won't attend an interview if I don't know what the salary or the salary range is. Oh, right. Okay. So, That's interesting. Yeah. I, I actually don't. Uh, not at all. Um, and so once I'm in the process, there isn't much negotiation. Occasionally I've negotiated and I'll, I'll ask for like maybe between two and five K more on, on the offer simply because just because it's nicer to start on a higher salary. Mm -hmm. um, and because I'm not asking for that much more, um, it, does, it doesn't throw them out of budget. And they just, you know, they've already offered me. I know they want to secure me as a candidate. I might do. But generally speaking, the salary is something that I've nailed down way before then. Um, and then... I won't, what I'll do is I won't necessarily discuss all the, all the, all the extra trappings. So things like bonuses, things like car allowance, um, bonus, whether you have, you know, uh, shares in the company, those things can also change. So 
on the job market at the moment, there's a lot of uh, companies that are building HR teams from scratch. And some of them, like, they don't have, like, they don't have a bonus structure. Mm -hmm. And like, if they don't have a bonus structure, then I would say, based on that, can you increase your offer to X? Mm -hmm. Because, um, you know, I'm going to be losing out on that money. Um, and that's, that's fine. But there isn't, I'm actually not someone who does loads and loads of negotiation. But if you, if you do want to negotiate, um, then all you need to, first of all, you need to do it between a specific window. So that's okay. after the offer and before acceptance. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've seen people negotiate at all different times of the process. If it's before the offer, it's a little bit presumptuous. And if it's, <laughs> um, <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and if it's after the offer, they know that you'll accept because you already did. Yeah. So, I've, you know, I've seen it all, all times, but that's the window of time. That's the first thing. Um, and also you want to outline what you're bringing to them. So if you're saying, well, look, I have a combination of, you know, new business development, client skills. I've got this, I've got that. I, um, I'm bringing with me a bank of clients or whatever skills that you're bringing outline that and then you can say to them with that in mind would you offer based you know this salary um and ask for whatever salary you want and i love the fact that you said best possible salary and not highest mm -hmm. because one thing that people seem to forget is if you negotiate a high salary you need to deliver quicker than what you said in yeah. the interview absolutely basically yeah, yeah. Yeah. Basically, you need to deliver way more. Um, and, and best salary is different for everyone. It's sometimes for people, it's, you know, 20K, 50K, 300K, your 500K, whatever. Um, so it, it really is subjective, but you just need to remember that. It's really, really important. I remember um, this, the same guy with the suit, actually. <laughs> he um, he got an inter he had an internal interview and was an, an associate director. And um, I asked him a few months later, like, what happened with that role? You haven't talked about it. how's it going? And he was like, yeah, I didn't know what I was doing. Like, and he said, I'm not, I'm not doing that anymore. And he just kind of like glossed over it, but he'd basically gone back to being a salesperson. And I was like, how did you get from what you did to that role internally? But that's how powerful interviews can be. Yeah, if yeah. you, if you know how to position yourself, you can get that. Um, so, but you just don't want to bite off more than you can chew. So that's, that's one of my kind of warnings with that, but I'm not a major negotiator. Make sure that you're clear about what you want. Um, if it's not on the job description, when they say to you, would you like to attend an interview, say to them, what's the salary range? And they have they have to tell you. Um, if they don't, something is very, very suspicious. That, so. That's really, really interesting because I think that as British people, we tend not to negotiate these things. And it's weird because I've got a friend of mine at the moment, and I won't mention his name, but when he listens to this, he'll know that I'm talking about him. So he's <laughs> he's within a business. He's been there for like five years. And he's been taking on extra responsibility. And just before Christmas, he was bold enough to say, listen, guys, I've been taking on responsibilities, which is this job role. I want to be promoted to that job role. And I want the consummate pay to go along with it as well. So they had a meeting. They've, they've agreed, yes, you're going to get promotion, all that kind of stuff. And he's since done some research. And he's like, I know that they're going to offer it to me. But now I'm going to go back and I'm going to ask for £5,000 more. Now, the reason why I say that is because he's Japanese. He has no compunction with being like, listen, no, that's not fair. I think this is fair because everybody else is paying this much. I want to be paid what everyone else is being paid. I think sometimes mm -hmm. as, as English, British people, we're kind of like, oh, that's a bit cutthroat. That's a bit, that's a bit too forward. Mm, it's maybe a little impolite. I'm not sure that I want to have that conversation because we don't want to step on toes or ruffle feathers. And exactly. do you think that's maybe a mindset or a traditional thing? Oh, it's a mixture. I mean, I was re. Uh, do you know, it just reminds me of just briefly Malcolm Gladwell. I was reading his book. It's called Outliers. Um, 
or outlier. It basically it's it talks about different cultures and how it, how seriously it can affect so, your living experience. So British culture is very polite. I remember so the ten years before I was in, uh, so I did about ten years in a mixture of sales, customer service, um, uh, secretarial, etc., and then I spent ten years in HR and. I sold so many things. I've sold so many different things in that time. Um, I've done tele sales. I've sold energy broker. I've sold broadband, mobile phones. I've sold uh, recruitment advertising. I've sold it. I've sold everything. And um, it's interesting because I always loved selling to the British public because you could be on campaigns where you'd be selling to the US at different times, etc. And if they the Brit, what would happen with people in Britain if they didn't want to speak to you? They would just say, "Oh, the, the dinner's ready," or, or mm-hmm. "Someone's at the door," or you know, they wouldn't just say, "Look, get, I don't want to speak to you." Yeah. you know? Whereas when you speak to the US people, they're like, "I would rather <laughs> burn hot coals through like, <laughs> like than speak to you." Right? They, they are brutal, absolutely brutal. But because the thing about the British public is they don't really say no, and so if you can keep them on the phone, which, which I did, you can sell to them yeah, yeah, yeah. and they were great to sell to you because of that reason. But unfortunately what that means for the individuals is I see this in a lot of workplaces, people that don't say anything. Yeah. Um, and there are some management structures in some companies that love hiring people like that. They don't complain about anything. Um, they won't just say, they won't just be blunt. And I've been called on my bluntness many times throughout my career. And I sometimes say, I will address that. I don't have that much intention to address it, to be honest, because I'm like, it's, it's, it's pushed me to where I am. Um, and I think that there is something to be said for being authentic and transparent about what you really want. You know what? It's really interesting. And we could have another conversation about this on a completely different matter. Um, but Jordan Peterson is known for talking about the fact that less agreeable people, so people who are blunt, mm-hmm. who are happy to you know, voice their opinions, are oftentimes more successful in careers and earn more money because they'll be like, no, no, I'm not going to do all that work for that amount of money. Absolutely not. If you want me, <laughs> you need to pay me this much. They're, they're a lot less agreeable. So therefore, they're slightly more conducive for climbing the corporate ladder or moving in through business at quite a fast pace compared to someone who may be a little bit more agreeable in their tone. And I think you're right. It is very much country-based type, like we're mm. so polite here, really, really polite. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting dynamic to be able to observe, and especially mm. from you saying that as well in terms of your findings within the workplace too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, it creates a lovely, pleasant atmosphere in general for being in this country. People are very polite to each other. Um, so you don't see some of the some of the unrest that you might see in countries where that's not necessarily the case. You know, people are a lot more outspoken, generally speaking, mm-hmm. in, say, the US. And, you know, that can cause a number of... Di- you know, how many videos have we seen gone viral of two people shouting at each other in a supermarket? And, you know, in in Britain, it's, it's all... The only thing we say to each other, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. So, were you queuing? I, I, no, no, you go. You go. No, you've got a child. No, but you've got more shopping. And it's, you know, that's kind of what happens um, in Britain. So it's lovely for that purpose. But of course, when you then want to, you know, variety of situations, and if someone asks you out and you want to say no, you don't, you know, you just feel uncomfortable or, you know, you want a high salary, but you just don't want to ask or you want to leave, but you think you're letting someone down. I was was having this conversation with my friend, actually. She wanted to move from her job, but her manager had guilt tripped her. And so she's like, I'll I'll just stick in it for now. And I was like, no, 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 no. 
Oh, God. Yeah. So, yeah. so the one thing that I've learned in corporate world, and, and I think this might be a really good thing to close on just in terms of one of my biggest lessons is I'm the kind of person that when I'm in something, I'm fully dedicated, like especially for, mm-hmm. for a company where I believe in what we're doing and the culture is positive and they reward mm-hmm. you for the hard work that you put in. I'm in 100 percent. But mm-hmm. you have to remember, and this is one of my biggest revelations, revelations is that, you know, if you drop dead tomorrow, that business will still continue to exist without you. So it's very, very important that, number one, you get what you need out of the situation. And number two, mm-hmm. in getting what you need out of the situation as well, that you don't sacrifice too much on your side for the sake of that business that would basically just gloss over the fact that you're no longer there and thrive on for years and years and years without you being there. One of my biggest, biggest lessons, and I think certainly now with the great resignation, people looking to move on to their own business ventures and look at their own mm-hmm. like careers that they want to go into. I think that's really, really important for people to acknowledge. You're preaching to the choir. <laughs> you really are. Um, in in the last say, five years, I was managing a team and there was a lady on the team who had a child um, with learning difficulties and she wanted to spend some some time at home with them um and she just kept apology you know, if, if there was a day where she had to come in late she needed to take them to school she needed to she needed to spend more time with them she thought oh, i'm so sorry i'm so sorry and i said to her you never need to apologize for that because um i said when you're old you will not look back and say i wish i spent more time on those emails i wish i did you'll be glad that you were there to spend more time with your child basically That's the most important thing. And let me tell you that when companies are doing redundancies, they don't care about whether or not it's a suitable time for you. Of course not. They don't care. So when you need to leave, you need to remember that, do you know what I mean? It needs to be right for you. It absolutely needs to be right for you. So 100% with you on that one. So in ending this, where can people find you? What's the YouTube channel? What's your socials? If people want to kind of consume content and um, and speak to you. (laughs) bit weird actually i'm i'm a bit of a i'm kind of in some ways i'm very very old school like i keep a paper diary all the rest don't have an instagram i tried it for a little while and i just couldn't keep up with it um and i don't i don't really have much socials apart from youtube youtube is pretty much it for me so amory celeste is is my name if you search that you'll find me and uh that's pretty much it really i like to keep things straightforward so Excellent. I will leave a link to Amory's um, YouTube channel in the show notes. If you do want to go check her oh, out, thank you. trust me, go and check it out. There are some really, really good practical um, tips and practical videos on YouTube. If you are entering an interview process, that kind of stuff. And please do share it as well. Because I know if there's 4 million people out there, or God knows how many millions of people in the UK between jobs mm. right now, then this is a really, really good resource for you to go and watch and really pick up some valuable tips. So thank you so much for being with me. This has been really, really cool. Um, No, I've loved it. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Not a problem at all. So guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do share it if you do, uh, if you have. And please, if you have been following the podcast, this is the third year on the podcast now, looking to get more reviews across all of the podcast app kind of like platforms. So if you're listening on Google, on Apple, or on Spotify, please leave us a review. That would be most appreciated. Um, as always, money's a tool, life is for living. This episode is about helping you earn the money that you need, not necessarily in the investment world, uh, but to essentially live the life that you want. I will catch you next week. Have an amazing week.
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, be sure to check out other episodes and share with the people closest to you. New to investing? Check out Peter's course for first-time investors designed to give you the foundation you need. If you prefer one-on-one coaching, book a complimentary discovery with the man himself. All links in the show notes.